if you were here with us last Sunday, I introduced you to the last of the living apostles, and his name was John, the son of Deb Zebedee. One of those guys that was fishing out by the Sea of Galilee when Jesus walked by and said, come, follow me. And according to the story, he left everything of his old way of life to give his life to following Jesus. At the end of John's life, far after every other apostle had been killed and buried, John came to what seems this, re this, this realization or revelation that with his death would come the end of an era. And what is it when you are an eyewitness of Jesus, I mean, personally commissioned by him, what is it that you want to make sure gets written down, gets shared, gets clarified and presented for all of the generations that will follow that will not have the luxury of talking face to face with an apostle again. And out of that, what we come to is this amazing biography of Jesus that we call the gospel according to John. There's four biographies of Jesus that you'll find in the New Testament. They go by the names of the people who authored them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then fourth is John, very different than the other three with his own unique perspective. His thumbprint is all over it, his unique sort of take. The last of the living apostles sharing with us how he came to know Jesus, what he remembers about Jesus, what he knew about Jesus to be true and clarifying the rumors and the misconceptions that came in about Jesus that weren't true as well along the way. It is his last will and testimony. Because above all things, what was important to John was not what he had to give, but who he had to point you to, the one that made all the difference in John's life, the one that mattered in every conceivable way, the one who gave him purpose and hope and meaning, the one who gave him what John will call life. Jesus, the last words he writes are words not about himself, but about him. And today we're starting a several-month journey going through this amazing story of Jesus from John's perspective. Now, to set this up, I find that today there is an unfortunate conflict at play between science and the Christian faith. And I say it's unfortunate because, truth be told, inherently, there really isn't any conflict at all between science and the Christian faith. But the reality is that because of people's misperceptions about what science is and what the Christian faith is and the assumptions that people bring to their understanding of science and the Christian faith, this conflict has seemed to have, have kind of risen up. And many people, I find, kind of carry this conflict within their soul that they feel like there's this war or this tension or this contradiction, if you will, between science and the Christian faith. 
especially when it comes to matters of the question why. Like, why are we here? And all that pertains and spins out of that, like, how did this world come to be? And how does it hold together? And, and what's the essence and, 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 and driving, unifying force of it all? Now, something fascinating that I've found in having just conversations with people of every walk and spectrum of life, people who are scientists and Christians, people who are scientists who aren't Christians, people who are Christians and not scientists and everything else in between, right? Is that even among the most secularly minded scientists, there still seems to be this, this, this prevailing idea that there is some kind of unifying principle to creation. A force, if you will, that everything we know is built upon. A rationality, if I can put it that way. That the world as we know it is logical, and even when it is illogical, there still is a, a reason and a rationale. There still is a coherence to what's going on. We identify things like the beauty of the world, the symmetry of the world. There seems to be a certain logic undergirding this world as we know it that even expresses itself in language like mathematics. You know, it kind of like makes sense and it's consistent that this logic or this beauty or this symmetry, this, this rationality doesn't just seem to exist at certain times and at certain places, but it seems to kind of always be there with the assumption that even the most secular and atheistic of scientists will say that has been there since the beginning, is there to this day and will be there until all things fade into oblivion. You'll hear this put in a number of different ways. But fascinating to me is some will even describe this, this, this embedded principle, this, this rational idea, this, this logic, if you will, to the universe with words like personality or intelligence or even as though there is a mind to it. The famous uh, atheistic writer Richard Dawkins has an amazing way of putting this. He calls it the poetry of the universe, that there isn't just what is, but an order and a function, a logic, a progression, and a beauty to it all. And so John opens his gospel by saying this. In the beginning was the eternal principle. And the eternal principle was with God. And the eternal principle was God. The eternal principle was with God in the beginning. 
Through this eternal principle, all things were made. And without this eternal principle, nothing was made that has been made. And in this eternal principle was life. And that life was the light of humanity. And that light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Now, just like today, people in John's day believed all sorts of things about how the universe came to be. But just like today, all seem to agree that when you look at life as we know it, there seems to be these embedded principles or these eternal principles that undergird everything. Now, John didn't use the English phrase eternal principle as I used it today. He used a different word that made sense to the people in his day. And it was pronounced logos. It's not Legos. It's logos. And you actually kind of know this word. It's a Greek word, but it's found its way into English. And you might know it from that suffix that you see at the end of any course that you've ever taken, especially in the sciences. That, that, that suffix is ology, psychology, biology, physiology, or whatever ology word you, see, you seek to put it on. Now, a lot of us were told very early on, maybe like fifth grade or something by our teacher, that the word ology means the study of. Well, it, it really doesn't. I mean, it, it's, it's dynamic, it kind of works, but, but, but that's more dynamic than it is the root meaning of the word. Ology is just logos brought into English. The logos of the psyche, the locus of the bios, the locos of the physio, if you will. And it means something like this, matters pertaining to. The subject surrounding. The principles about. It often gets translated with the word, word. But it's so much more than just a spoken word. Certainly at times it can refer to that, but far more often, especially in the worldview of John's day, this logos, this word, came to hold a certain kind of stature as being the way to describe the eternal principles of the universe itself. Pythagoras, who gave us classic hits like the Pythagorean theorem, he describes and defines logos as the intelligent mind. Plato, you probably know that name, will describe the logos as being a divine reason, if you will. The Stoics, who were atheists of their own day and, and had much in common in their worldview with the atheism and secularism as it exists here in our world today, would call it the law of the generation of the universe. Not generation like, like I'm of this generation, but to generate something. The principle, if you will, that brings all things into being. 
They defined it in the simple word logos. So John opens his gospel by saying this, in the beginning was the logos, and the logos was with God, and the logos was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through this logos, all things were made. Without this logos, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life. And that life was the light of humanity. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The Jews in Jesus' day had their own way of putting it too. They didn't use the word logos quite as much, though they did on occasion. But they would use their own language to describe the same idea behind what this logos is. They would describe it as wisdom or Torah. And Torah is often translated law, if you've heard that word before. But it only works if you understand that translation to mean more like laws of the universe as opposed to laws like a legal code. The Torah of God is the principles of God. The teaching and instruction of God about the way of the world and what it is and how it holds together. They would even call it the way. And so you see New Testament writers saying things about Jesus like this, that he is the wisdom of God. You see Jesus say things like this, I am the way. I am the logos. John opens his gospel by trying to impress on us that Jesus is the eternal principle by which all things are made and by which all things hold together. What do you say when you're the last apostle and you are the final testimony to this one called Jesus, who you followed through your life, who you watched suffer and die and rise again, whose teachings you sat at, whose miracles you witnessed, whose way of life you've patterned yourself against. He starts by saying, this one Jesus is more than a man. No, this one Jesus, you know the word Greeks, he's the logos, the eternal principle, the one from the very beginning and by which all things made in the beginning hold together. And John, above all things, wants us to meet this Jesus for who he truly is. He wants us to come and believe in him, to put our faith in him, to give our lives to him like John did. I love the way he sums it up at the end of his gospel. We're going to see this a lot over the next several weeks. It's worth memorizing and knowing and embedding in your heart. He writes this. After all said and done in his biography, Jesus did a whole bunch of other stuff. He performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples that I didn't take the time to write down. Wouldn't you love that edition? But he says this, 
But these things, these things that I chose to write right here, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Because if there is any indisputable proof or evidence to existence today, is that there is life. Things are alive. We see things that are dead, we see things that are alive. Or we see things that were never alive, so never died and just aren't alive, but there are certainly other things that are alive. Would you agree? It would be hard-pressed to find anyone, no matter their worldview, no matter their belief, that would not agree that certain things are alive. And what John wants you to do is be alive. He'll quote Jesus saying, to have life, but to have it to the full. Because I think most of us would also agree that while there are certain things that are alive and certain things that are not, it isn't just binary, but there are certain things that are alive that seem to live more robustly, to seem to live more with more vitality, that seem to live to a greater degree. There seems to be degrees of life. Would you agree? And John wants you to have life to the greatest degree. And what John found is that life is not found in the things that we invest our time and pursuits in today, offering but never quite delivering. What John found is that the fullness of life is given by the one who is the author of life and the one who holds life together. The logos, the eternal principle, the way, the wisdom of God, Jesus. The entire story that John is about to take us through is meant to bring us to him, to bring us to him for life and life to the full. And John will say that this eternal principle, who is the author of life, who is the sustainer of life, who gives us life, came to life himself in this world. Like you and me, he goes on. The beginning of his gospel records that there was a man who was sent from God. But it's not who you think. His name was John. And he came as a witness to testify concerning that light that gives life to all who believe. Now, now the gospel writer John makes it clear he himself was not the light. He only gave witness to the light. The true light that gives life to everyone was yet to come into the world. And you know what he did? He came into the world. He came to that which was his own. And yet his own did not receive him. But to those who receive him, to those who believe in his name, John writes, he gives the right to become children of God Children born not of natural descent, nor of a human decision, nor a husband's will, 
No, not all the normal ways that people come to light. No, children born of God. He writes this, the eternal principle, the divine reason, the logos became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who comes from the Father full of grace and truth. And through the pages of this gospel, what John will show is that Jesus, well, he did life like you and me. Showing the way of God at weddings, at churches, on the road, at the water cooler, at the hospital, at parties, at family gatherings, at parades and celebrations, at the dinner table, in the hands of authorities, in prison, at death. He will show us what life looks like in every conceivable way imaginable. Because every example I just shared with you are straight out of the gospel, according to John. What does life look like? And more significantly, what does life look like when you have it to the full? Not just in some theoretical way, but in the dirt of life, in the reality of life, in all of the ways and situations that we find ourselves embedded in today. Oh, make no mistake, John writes that this eternal principle, this divine reason, this rational mind, this one who is from the beginning became like you and me. And John saw in Jesus so much more than simply a man from Galilee. He saw the very Logos himself offering life to all who believe. And if you take the time, and I hope you will, to read these first 18 verses of the gospel according to John that I've just shared with you, you will find hints and aspects or hors d'oeuvres, if you will, to who this Logos made flesh happens to be, we will see that he is eternal, divine, and from the beginning. We will see that he is creator and the author of all things. We'll see that he's sustainer, one who binds all things together. We'll see that he's human tangible and real. We'll see that he's misunderstood. We'll see that he's confused. And we'll see the greatest irony, that those who should understand him better than anyone 
often miss him. But those who you would least expect are the ones who come to find life in him and life to the full. What we'll see is invitation to everybody to dare to believe in his name. But what we'll see is more than that, is not just daring to believe in his name in the way that we talk about it, as though, okay, I got this idea, I could pass the test, I got it. But to put our trust in him, our lives in his hands. To follow him when it's confusing. To listen to him when it's difficult. To walk like him. Even when we don't want to. But through this journey, to hear the voice of the eternal logos of the universe, saying, come, follow me. It's what John wants us to know in this biography of Jesus that he writes, which he calls gospel or good news. Good news that the author of life himself is offering life Still, And what we'll see is that when someone comes face to face with Jesus, things don't really remain the same. Because Jesus is one who invites people to choose. Will you follow me or will you reject me? Because for the Logos, there is no middle option. And so we see this challenge a challenge, hopefully, to each of us, especially those of us who, like in the Gospel of John, should know it better than anyone else, to answer the question, who do I say that he is, and what will I do about it? This is the story that John is about to tell. And my prayer and my hope is that as we go through this story together, that the reality of who Jesus is is imprinted on your soul. And the call of Jesus is in your ear to also put faith like John did. In Jesus' name. So today, we commune in this. We come together in a certain sense of oneness with this and a oneness with Jesus himself. The entire nature of what we're going to do is recorded in the gospel according to John. It parallels or mimics, if you will, something Jesus did with his disciples. And in that trajectory, we do it today. So I'm going to invite the band to come on up. And I'm going to invite you to rise. And together, I hope that maybe we can Pray and come together in his name and turn these words into something more than something on a screen or a page. Would you pray with me?
If the words written by that last apostle are to be believed, then you, O Lord, are the very author of life. You are from the beginning. You are God himself. And yet, rather than remain distant, transcendent above it all, you took on human flesh and lived here on planet Earth among us, showing us and teaching us and guiding us, fighting for us and praying for us, but more than that, dying for us and saving us and giving us an invitation to life and not just any life, but new life, life reborn and life to the full. Lord, may we seek that life. May we seek you. I pray, God, for those gathered today who are wrestling in their souls about the nature of who you are. I pray, Lord, through the testimony of this last apostle to show them, to make it clear and plain. I pray for those of us who have come to call on you as that eternal logos and Savior and Lord. I pray that we are never guilty of holding it lightly or never find ourselves among those who, while understanding it, miss it when it's before our face. I pray for those of us, God, gathered today who are new, filled with the hope and vibrancy of the life offered in your name, I pray that it is experienced to the absolute full. May we come to know you, God. May we want to know you. May your life become a picture of our life, especially now as we gather in your name. Amen.